Good morning, everyone. You're listening to the World Teacher Program for Share International New Zealand on Planet FM 104.6. Each Friday morning, we bring you information from the teachers of the Ageless Wisdom. The purpose of our program is to introduce Maitreya, the world teacher for the age of Aquarius. Maitreya does not come alone. He brings with him the Masters of Wisdom, a group of highly evolved teachers who work in many fields and teach us the art of living, how to work in right relationship with each other. With their inspiration, we can transform our civilization, creating justice and peace and use the technological advances available to us. Approximately every two and a half thousand years, a new teacher brings a body of teaching to humanity that is suited to our needs at that particular time. Usually this takes place at the end of an age. Right now, as the age of Pisces declines and our solar system aligns with the constellation Aquarius, new energies are beginning to make themselves felt. As these Aquarian energies of sharing and justice stream into our planet, the need for change can be seen more clearly. A period of chaos ensues as the old order lessens its grip on humanity and the impulse of sharing, justice and peace inspires us to move forward in evolution as a united group. Good morning everyone. Welcome to our program. We'd like to start today's program with an article titled The Amazon Forest and Its People Are in Danger. It's by Tiago Stabano Alves, and it was published in the September 2020 issue of Share International magazine. The Amazon rainforest covers 3.4 million square miles, a little more than half the size of the USA, and it produces 20% of the world's oxygen. It is the world's largest tropical rainforest and home to approximately 40,000 plant species and 1,300 bird species. The rainforest is also home to more than 30 million people and over 10% of the world's biodiversity. It is one of the great buffers against the climate crisis since the trees absorb carbon dioxide. The Bolsonaro government is responsible for the greatest increase of deforestation and burning of the Amazon in Brazil's history. It chafes at environmental protection laws and deliberately neglects its indigenous populations and has continued illegal threats to and murders of environmental activists and the destruction of indigenous peoples of the region. In June this year, the country saw a 10.6% increase in forest devastation compared to the same month last year. In the first half of the year, the increase was 25% over the same period in 2019, reaching over 3,000 square kilometres, an area equivalent to twice the size of the city of Sao Paulo, or slightly more than the size of uh, Yosemite National Park, which is um, over 3,000 square kilometres. In 2019, according to the NGO Global Witness, Brazil witnessed uh, one-third of all tropical forest losses in the world. Um, The growth of forest devastation is closely associated with the loosening or weakening of various environmental policies made uh, possible under the current management of the Ministry of Agriculture by Ricardo Sales. 
changes in the laws remove the protection from the region's indigenous population whose way of life so closely associated with the forest is one of the main factors in the conservation and protection of the rainforest. Among the measures adopted by the current government is one that allows the invasion, exploitation and commercialisation of indigenous lands. Another, which puts the populated areas of the region at risk, allows pesticides to be used closer to villages and other population centres. The government also vetoed an emergency project to protect indigenous populations against COVID-19, which required the state to provide drinking water, hygiene and hospital beds for these populations, making the situation of these groups even more precarious in the midst of the pandemic. In addition, a massive decrease in the budget of the Ministry of the Environment was promoted, which limits the power of the agencies responsible for monitoring illegal burning and deforestation actions. Finally, laws are still being processed in the Brazilian Congress, which, if approved, will promote a loosening of the rules for environmental licensing in order to allow exploitative new construction projects in the region. It is important to note that many of these measures were taken in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, with the Minister of the Environment himself stating that the pandemic must be used to pasa a boyada, which means loosen the country's environmental laws, calculating that. With the attention of the media focused on the number of deaths and new cases of the virus in the country, little attention would be given to the measures. As a result, social and environmental movements in Brazil began strongly to oppose the current government's policies, and demonstrations have been taking place since 2019 in major Brazilian cities across the country, and often with the support of demonstrators in other parts of the world. Unfortunately, this has also led to a violent reaction on the part of those who cause deforestation. According to the NGO Global Witness, Brazil is the third most lethal country in the world for environmental activists and defenders. In 2019 alone, there were 24 deaths among the environmental activists, and 90% of which occurred in the Amazon region. One of the most dramatic cases was that of Paulo Paulinho Gaudrajara, an important Gaudrajara indigenous leader, 26, murdered last year. And this year, four more Gaudrajara indigenous leaders were killed. The nature of the link between environmental destruction and the spread of zoonotic diseases is known. Indigenous people have been aware of the threat of a pandemic even before COVID-19, Traditional knowledge in their relationship with the natural world world, has meant that they only know that environment destruction can contribute towards the spread of disease. It is important to protect Indigenous peoples and their knowledge. Their territories are home to 80% of the world's biodiversity and they can teach us much about how to rebalance our relationship with nature and reduce the risk of future pandemics. Right. Now, our next article is, um, it continues with the theme of nature, but on behalf of the animal kingdom. Mark Beckoff, PhD, is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado. 
Together with Jane Goodall, he co-founded Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is also an ambassador ambassador for Goodall's Intentional Roots and Shoots program in which he works with students, senior citizens and people who are incarcerated. His areas of research and interest have centered on human-animal interactions, animal protection, behavioral ecology, animal behavior and emotions, and compassionate conservation. Beckhoff has authored uh, 30 books, including The Animal Manifesto, Six Reasons for Expanding Our Compassion Footprint, and The Emotional Lives of Animals. A leading scientist explores animal joy, sorrow, and empathy, and why they matter. Magnea Essart interviewed him for Share International. And his first question was, how did your interest in animal consciousness and emotion studies get started? And Mark replied... I've been interested in animal emotions and consciousness since the time I was about two years old. My mother was very compassionate and empathetic. My um, dad had a very friendly nature and was a positive thinker. Those things had a great effect on me. My folks said that when I was young, I would talk to the animals in the neighbourhood. I would be concerned about what they were feeling and thinking. The field of animal emotions comes under the broader scientific discipline called cognitive ethology. What is that? I define it as the idea of animal minds based on the presumption that they have an active mind and that there is something going on in them. It's paying close attention to what animals are thinking and feeling when they are confronted with different situations. The field of cognitive ethology is growing rapidly there is a lot of comparative research going on. It is showing clearly that an incredible number of diverse non-human animals have very active, rich minds and feelings. Another question, how would you define consciousness in animals? In exactly the same way that we do for humans, the simple definition would be that they perceive what's going on, ponder what's going on. They then make choices about what to do in particular situations. Lots of non-human animals are able to look at what's going on and decide what the best thing to do in that situation. Flexibility in behavior is a good marker of consciousness. Another question, is the manifestation of consciousness different between non-human animal species? It depends on how you define it. From a biological and ethological point of view, it is the ability to assess a situation and decide what is the best action to perform. In biological terms, it's what would be the most adaptive thing to do. So no, I don't think it is different. The way in which different animals, including human animals, adapt to diverse situations is different because of different sensory and motor capabilities or capacities, sorry. But if you look at it in a generic way, the ability to make the best decisions on what to do within a given situation is an expression of consciousness that spans different species. In an article in the Seattle Times, you said that many animals can distinguish right from wrong. Is consciousness in the animal kingdom reflected in what we might call a moral sense of things? Yes, it is reflected in examples of play behaviour across different species. When you watch them play, the play rarely escalates into aggression. 
they are assessing one another. They have agreed upon certain rules and obey certain rules in play. They assess what another individual is doing. I call it fine-tuning on the run. If I was playing with you and we were dogs, I would do something and almost instantaneously say, oh my goodness, how is he doing? Is he happy with what's going on? Do I need to change my behaviour? Did I hit him too hard? Did I bite him too hard? You can also see these sorts of things, if you will, moral or ethical decisions in animals that share food or help an individual in need. For a long time, people didn't pay much attention to it. They wrote it off as not possible. I'm heartened that more and more research is showing that the, there are these rules of sharing and justice, and these qualities are in a wide variety of species. Another question. Does consciousness in animals mean that animals have a soul? Well, I haven't studied that very deeply, but if we take it that human animals have souls, then there's no reason to think that non-human animals don't have souls. A lot of the debate comes down from the different religious or theological positions. It's interesting to ponder. I don't have the capacity to do it or the knowledge. What does it mean to have a soul? Well, if Mark Bickoff has a soul, then there is no reason to think that dogs and other animals don't have souls. Another question. What are the most conscious or the most intelligent animals? I don't think like that. I say that animals have to do what they need to do to be card-carrying members of their species. Talking about differences in intelligence from a biological view doesn't make much sense to me. For instance, rats can do a lot of uh, things that non-human primates can't do. Rats have certain olfactory faculties that gorillas don't have. Rats can solve problems or mazes that uh, gorillas can't, but no one would say that rats are smarter than gorillas. Now, if a gorilla or chimpanzee or dog does something uh, that rats can't do, well, very few people hesitate to say that dogs or other animals are smarter than the rats or the mice. From a biological point of view, we have to look at what an individual has to do to survive and thrive. I'm always asked because of my research on dogs, are dogs smarter than cats? Are cats smarter than dogs? It's not an important question. Cats do certain things, dogs do certain things. If they can survive and thrive, then that's a litmus test as to how well they're doing as a member of their species. There are differences within a species. Some animals learn certain tasks better. We also see multiple intelligences within a species. There are dogs who have social smarts, for instance, and dogs who are street smart. Some dogs are able to figure out certain problems better than others, but I wouldn't say one is necessarily smarter than the other. They have different sorts of intelligence. A lot of my dogs were very bright, but only two or three of them would have done well on their own in the streets. In humans, we know of certain non-verbal means of communication, what some people call telepathy or ESP. Does that exist in the animal kingdom? What I've learnt by spending countless hours watching different species is that I, as a human, don't share their same sensory capacities. I don't have the smell capacity or the hearing capacity of a dog or other animals. I don't see what certain animals see. I don't communicate in the ultraviolet, the ultrasound or infrasound range. 
The simplest definition is that they are communicating with one another using different sensory capacities, sensory sensitivities that we don't have. I hear stories all the time about, oh, my dog or cat or some wild animals are telepathic. As a scientist, I'll leave the door open and just say, are they? I don't know. Now the question, do animals have the same sort of emotions found in humans? Well, we humans have the same emotions of joy, grief, uh, embarrassment, sadness, or happiness, but manifest those in different ways. I don't know if your joy is the same as my joy, or your grief is the same as my grief, but it would be wrong to say that I have it and you don't. Among a lot of non-human animals, there is a spectrum of emotions, but there will be differences among the animals themselves. When people say that dogs and cats, mice, rats and killer whales don't feel the same way we do, I say, number one, we don't know that. Number two, it really doesn't matter because I might not feel the same way as you do in certain situations. We might express grief, joy or jealousy in different ways. Another question. There was a meeting of scientists at the University of Cambridge in 2012 where they issued a document called the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness. It concluded that humans are not unique in their capacity for consciousness. It's also extensive in the animal kingdom. Do you think their conclusion was a surprise for people in the non-scientific community? Well, no. The Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness was long overdue. I was hoping at the time it would have an effect on the way we treat non-human animals. Here we have 16 distinguished scientists, and only one or two ever study human-animal behavior, and they're all coming out and signing the Cambridge Declaration. There was a big to-do about it. Stephen Hawkins was there. It was all over the news. But overall, it was a great disappointment. The declaration itself had very little effect on the well-being of animals used in research, for food, in entertainment, and in hunting. It hasn't had much effect on the way in which we interact with other animals. That brings up a question about the COVID-19 virus. It's believed that the virus originated in bats and was passed through an intermediary animal to humans. Is this sort of disease transmission indicative of a wrong relationship between us and the animal kingdom? I've done a lot of interviews on this and I'm not an expert, but there's no doubt that in our interactions with other animals, like at the live markets in China and in other venues, the virus is transmitted from some non-human animals to human animals. A lot of people who aren't necessarily vegetarian or vegan have decided to change their meal plans because the relationship is unclear. I believe that what we now know shows clearly that the way in which these non-human animals are treated, the way they're consumed, handled and touched, is important in the perpetuation of this horrific virus. Another question. Do you have hope for the future in terms of the way we interact with the animal kingdom? I am hopeful, but it's going to take a long time. A lot of people are stressed and suffering greatly during this pandemic. Asking them to change their attitude towards non-human animals is difficult. It's easy to ask them, but getting them to do something is difficult. We'll have to change for the better or we're doomed. We can't keep killing other animals, consuming them, stealing their home, and think the earth will retain some sort of ecological balance. That's all we have time for, so thanks for listening in. If you'd like more information, check out the website, share-international.org. Love and blessings to you all.